For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. All right, we're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians 8, verse 1 through 13, which I entitled, Using Your Freedom to Love People. The title becomes evident as we start studying this passage. Let's dive in. 1 Corinthians 8, verse 1. Paul says, Now about food sacrificed to idols, we know that we all possess knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. So, you read this and you think to yourself, it seems like Paul is sort of pitting knowledge up against love as if those two things are in opposition to one another. But it's important for us to remember the context that in the city of Corinth, people were fascinated with these Greek sophists, these people who would travel into town and they would use eloquent speech and flowery language to impress their, li- their listeners. And they were advocating the newest ideas that were circulating throughout the ancient world. So the Corinthian believers were actually looking at Paul the apostle and comparing him to these sophists. And they were criticizing Paul and saying, He doesn't speak like these sophists do. And so they felt like people who had this incredible knowledge, who could speak in this Greek rhetoric, those were the people we should listen to. And so Paul was opposing that. Now, it's very clear that Paul wasn't an anti-intellectual. In fact, when you look at his life, he studied under an incredible teacher, this guy named Gamaliel, regarded as one of the greatest scholars of the, of the first century. And Paul had a vast knowledge, not only of the Bible, but probably of Greek literature and philosophy. And so we see statements like this in Philippians 1 verse 8, where Paul seems to harmonize these two things and actually points to how our knowledge actually helps us love people more. He says, and this is my prayer that your love may abound more and more in knowledge. So apparently, Paul thinks that as you grow in biblical knowledge, that that actually equips you to love people in a deeper way. So how does growing in knowledge lead to abounding love? I think, first of all, as we grow in knowledge and discernment, it helps us to love people more effectively. The Bible reveals to us the deficiencies we have as human beings. And so, as we study the Bible, as we understand God's view of humanity, that we actually become more capable of helping people out. Because we not only understand what God says about humans, but also He gives us the prescription for how to change in some of these areas where we struggle. Secondly, knowing biblical truth allows us to bring the power of God's word to bear. I mean, after all, when you talk to somebody about a complicated problem in your life, the question that naturally should come to your mind is, why should I listen to him? Why should I listen to her? I mean, after all, when we're speaking based on our own life experience or based on our authority, we're really relying on human speculation. But when we turn to God's written word, God tells us that he reveals truth to us. 
And so when we bring God's truth to bear in people's lives, we're actually allowing God's transforming power to come and illuminate people's thinking. Finally, we grow in proportion to what we know. The Bible connects or links knowledge of God's truth with spiritual growth. And as we grow spiritually, we're more capable of loving people. That's one of the main goals that we see in spiritual growth. So Paul isn't an anti-intellectual. He's not suggesting that knowledge is bad. He actually sees these two things as accentuating one another. But he brings this up in the context of, of food sacrifice to idols. Um, it's important for us to understand the background on this. You know, in the ancient world, there was a large pantheon of Greek gods. And, you know, you go to a city and there would be dozens of temples, shrines where you could go and worship. This was particularly true in Corinth where they had many different gods there who resided. And so what would happen is practitioners or worshipers would come to the temple with their sacrificial animal and they would give the priest of that god their animal to sacrifice. And as a tribute or as a payment for the sacrifice, typically the people would give the remaining parts of the animal, the choice cuts of meat, to the priest as a payment. So as you can imagine, every day as the priest is sacrificing animals, his stock of choice cuts of meat would, would start to grow and he would have a surplus in which case he would, he would go to you know, the local market, meat market, and sell off the stuff that he wasn't going to use. And so lots of uh, different people uh, in the Christian community were very paranoid about eating meat that was sacrificed to idols. After all, they didn't like slap a USDA label on their meat saying, you know, this meat has been sacrificed to Aphrodite. And so it left people wondering whether or not this meat was actually defiled. They viewed it as unclean because it was sacrificed to a false god. And this was really a problem that we see throughout the early church. This wasn't just something isolated to the city of Corinth. We see this in other letters as well. For example, in Romans 14, Paul addresses a group there who is struggling with something very similar. He says in verse 1 and 2, accept him who is weak in faith without passing judgment on these disputable matters. One man's faith allows him to eat everything, but another man whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. Now, if you're a vegetarian or a vegan here, Paul isn't saying that you're unspiritual because you're a vegetarian. Um, he's uh, really addressing an issue that was going on there very similar to the one that we see in Corinth. Um, the dispute that was going on was that there were uh, believers there who took the stance that whenever you ate meat sacrificed to idols, that that actually defiled you. That was unclean. And so they decided that they were going to abstain from eating this meat. And so he... Uh, those who didn't think it was wrong, Paul refers to as the strong in faith in Romans 15.1. He says those people who 
don't feel like it's a problem to eat this meat that had been sacrificed to idols. These people have strong faith. Others, though, like these uh, Jewish Christians who are coming out of a, a pretty strict religious background, believe that it was wrong and defiling to eat this meat. And it's likely what they were doing is they were drawing from examples in the Old Testament. For, for instance, we know that Daniel and his buddies in the book of Daniel decided that they were going to abstain from eating meat or any food that came to them from the king's table because often they had to offer up a toast uh, to the foreign gods. And so they took a stance that we're not going to eat anything except for vegetables as a protest to the Babylonians trying to get them to conform to the culture. So they were probably modeling what they were doing after some of these Old Testament figures who decided that they were going to only eat vegetables. And yet he refers to them as weak in faith. It's kind of odd. Why would he regard these people who are following their consciences as weak in faith? Well, <clears throat> he explains in our passage in 1 Corinthians 8, verse 4 through 6. So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there is no God but one. So he points out, you know, when you sacrifice to idols or false gods. Those aren't real gods. There's only one true God, the God of the Bible. And he's probably alluding to Deuteronomy 32 in the Old Testament where God declared that when people are worshiping foreign gods, they're worshiping no God at all. And so he goes on to say, for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and from whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. As a side note, I think it's interesting that here we have a very clear statement from Paul declaring that Jesus indeed was God. And, you know, critics of the Bible say that when you look at the Bible... A lot of times there is this progression where, for example, in the Gospel of John, one of the Gospels that we know was written probably last among the, the books in the New Testament, that there are plenty of statements declaring Jesus to be God. And so the idea is that some of the earlier books, really there weren't that many passages claiming that Jesus was God, but as you know, Christianity sort of evolved. Jesus became more than a man. He became God. And yet it's really interesting that most scholars, including skeptical scholars, regard the book of 1 Corinthians as authentic. That Paul the apostle actually wrote it and wrote it around AD 51 or 52. Less than 20 years after Jesus had died and been raised from the dead. And so here we have one of the earliest statements in the New Testament declaring Jesus as deity. Well, he says in verse 3 and 4, the man who eats everything must not look down on him who does not. And the man who does not eat everything must not condemn the man who does, for God has accepted him. So apparently they were judging each other. 
the Gentile or non-Jewish Christians were looking down on the Jewish Christians because they were abstaining from eating this meat. They were like, what? There's only one God. Who cares whether or not you eat this meat? Then he says, who are you to judge someone else's servant? And to his own master, he stands or he falls. And he will stand for the Lord is able to make him stand. He who eats meat eats to the Lord. For he who gives thanks to God and he who abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. So Paul's main concern here in dealing with these believers in Rome is not making either side change their actions, but trying to get them to be unified and to avoid this judgmental attitude toward one another. He says in verse 13 and 14, Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in your brother's way. As one who is in the Lord, I am fully convinced that no food is unclean in itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for him it's unclean. Okay. Does it seem to you that Paul's maybe falling into some sort of moral relativism? He's sort of like, you know... Man, if anyone regards something as unclean, then I guess it's unclean. But, you know, if, it's, if you don't, then I guess that's okay too, man. You know, maybe it's just a matter of your preference, right? Like what our culture would say. And yet he says, I'm fully convinced that no food is unclean in itself. So he's making it very clear that no food is unclean. Jesus declared food uh, as clean because it comes from God. But what he's talking about here is whether or not they think it's unclean, okay? That it's a matter of their conscience. Okay, this is a complicated topic. So I, wa I wanted to create a diagram to sort of discuss what we might call principalized ethics versus what you might call nomistic ethics, which just means law-based ethics, okay? So here you have a circle, all right? And then outside of this circle, you have moral absolutes. These are things that God says, you shouldn't do these things, right? Um, going out and robbing a liquor store, that's wrong, right? Smoking crack with your friend, that's wrong, right? Those sorts of things fall outside of what God says is morally good or bad. So within this, then, you have what might be called moral gray areas. And these would be things like whether or not you should drink alcohol, right? The Bible doesn't say that Christians should abstain from alcohol. It's really a matter of one's conscience. Or let's say, um, you know, I really like watching movies. And of course, you know, you stumble across some stuff that may have some uh, sexual content in there. And you know, for me, it's not really that big of a deal. I don't have a problem with that. It doesn't stumble me. But you know, maybe somebody who struggles with, you know, habitual pornography use might feel like, oh, I don't want to watch that stuff because it kind of bothers me. It bothers my conscience, right? So there's moral gray area. And then you might have within this dotted circle what you might call individual restrictions, okay? 
Now, these individual restrictions are based on your personal struggles, your conscience. So for example, in the case of these Roman Christians who felt like they couldn't eat this meat sacrifice to idols, they decided that they were going to restrict their own freedoms because they felt like they couldn't eat this meat sacrifice to idols. A modern day analog would be something like, you know, imagine if you came out of a substance abuse background and you felt like, you know, even though I could probably enjoy a beer, I'm not sure or I feel confident that if I drank a beer, I, you know, would be able to drink with self-control. And so I've decided that I'm going to stop drinking altogether or that I'm not going to enter a bar because I feel like that's just too much temptation for me. Now, it's not wrong to drink, but I'm restricting my freedoms because personally I feel like it's a struggle that I, that I have to deal with. Or, I don't know, let's say you decide, okay, here are these group of friends who I used to run with and get in trouble I used to sell drugs with them or, you know, I do illegal activities and I've decided that I'm going to stop hanging out with them. Not because it's morally wrong, but because I know that every time I hang out with them, I fall into the same pattern of doing things that I know I shouldn't be doing. And so what I've done is I have restricted my freedoms because of my personal struggles, not because it's morally wrong. Okay. Now, there may be a number of ways that we arrive at these personal restrictions. Maybe God himself has spoken and said, you know what, maybe somebody else can handle this, but I don't think that you can. And so God may speak to us personally and say, maybe it's wise for you to restrict your freedom here because it's just too much. You can't handle it. Or it might be as a result of ignorance. Maybe we grew up in a certain tradition where, you know, there were certain things that you didn't do, and so therefore we feel in our conscience that we can't do that. You know, for example, I grew up going to church even though I wasn't a Christian, and my parents didn't drink. The people who attended my church didn't drink. We never had alcohol around the house, so I just naturally thought that, you know, as a Christian, you probably shouldn't drink. So I was pretty surprised when I started coming around to this fellowship, you know, people were cracking open beers and drinking and stuff and hanging out. I'm like, oh man, far out. Why are people drinking? You know, Christians shouldn't be doing that. That seems wrong. And I remember one day going over to a friend's house and I opened up his fridge and there were, you know, several six packs in there. And I just was amazed. And, and you know, I said, man, why do you guys have beer in your fridge? And he's like, what do you mean? There's nothing wrong with that. And so I was like, really? I thought that Christians weren't allowed to drink. And so, you know, he walked me through what the Bible says about alcohol. He even showed me passages where Jesus drank wine. And I was just blown away. And uh, he's like, you know, so there's nothing wrong with drinking. There is something wrong with getting drunk. But, you know, the Bible doesn't say that Christians should stay away from drinking. But it does say that, you know, we should honor our bodies. And so that cigarette that you're smoking right now that's wrong. And I was like, oh man, that's, that's wild. <laughs> and so I realized that, you know, my problem here was that I had adopted this tradition and thought that is, um, you know, what I should be doing instead of looking to what God says in his truth. And so from then on, I started drinking and smoking. <laughs> All right. So within there... <laughs> 
uh, you have what might be called individual freedoms, right? So as a person, you say, okay, there are certain limitations that I've placed on myself, but within that, you know, there are these individual freedoms that I can experience in Christ. So these individual freedoms, they differ from one person to another. You know, it's really a matter of conscience when it falls within this uh, moral gray area. Okay, let's go back to our passage now. 1 Corinthians 8, verse 7 and 8. He says, not everyone knows this. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat such food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to an idol. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We're no worse if we do not eat and no better if we do. So he points to these people as those who are weak in conscience. But these guys, it's a little bit different than the Roman Christians. These people who are weak in conscience, they're the ones who are coming out of this uh, worship of Aphrodite or these other false gods. And they were noticing that these mature Christians were sitting in the meat market eating meat sacrificed to idols. So they were connecting the dots and thinking, well, you know, I like Jesus, but I also really like to do a little bit of worship at Aphrodite's temple. And so these Christians are eating this meat sacrifice to idol, idols. Maybe that means that we can sort of, you know, follow Jesus and Aphrodite and maybe some other gods. And so the actions of these mature believers were actually stumbling those who were immature in their faith. He says, be careful, however, that the exercise of your freedom does not become a stumbling block to those who are weak. For if anyone with a weak conscience sees you who have this knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't he be emboldened to eat what has been sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. In other words, these people were using their freedom or their liberties with no regard for how it might impact these younger believers. Okay, let's see if we could try to clarify this a little bit. I know this is complicated, but there are some remarkable similarities. I think, first of all, in both cases with the Roman and the Corinthian believers, both refer to eating things sacrificed to idols, right? Secondly, in both cases, they refer to stumbling a brother, And finally, both are concerned about the weaker brothers. In both cases, Paul is talking about those who are weak in faith or weak in conscience. But we have to notice or mark some of the important differences as well. First of all, the weaker brother in 1 Corinthians 8 refers to someone who used to worship false gods. Whereas the weak in faith in Romans 14 were converted Jewish people. So they had no inclination to worship these false gods. It's a major difference. Secondly, the Corinthians were too permissive, whereas the Romans were too restrictive. That is, the believers in Corinth were just using their freedom. They didn't care how that impacted people. Whereas the Roman believers, especially the Jewish ones, were too afraid to eat this meat sacrifice to idols because they thought that it would contaminate them spiritually. 
And it's interesting that Paul really gives the same solution for two different problems. He suggests in both cases that both cases that the principle of servant love suggests that we should um, we should deny ourselves without judgment. Let me explain. You know, first of all, he's suggesting that we should enjoy our freedoms, not that we should you know uh, restrict our freedoms in Christ. Christ paid an incredible price to deliver us this freedom. Um, Look at what he says in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 23 and 24. Pretty stunning statement. He says, everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible, but not everything is constructive. Nobody should seek his own good, but the good of others. In other words, you have near limitless freedom in Christ. And yet, it's important for you to realize that even though you have freedom, it's not wise to just use that freedom however you want. You know, even though God's not going to punish you or judge you when you fall back into a bad pattern of life, that doesn't mean that you should just throw yourself headlong into that pattern or that lifestyle. And so we should enjoy our freedoms, but, but with certain restrictions. Secondly, what we do in gray area matters depends from one situation to another. Now, <clears throat> look at this passage right here in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 25 through 29. Paul actually gives them advice for how they should deal with this. He says, eat anything sold in the meat market without raising questions of conscience, for the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. If some unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go, eat whatever's put in front of you without raising questions of conscience. So, for example, you know, they lay out some uh, filet mignon in front of you as a guest. Just eat it. Don't ask any questions about it, whether it came from this market or whether it was offered as a sacrifice at this temple. But he says this, if anyone says to you this has been offered in sacrifice, then don't eat it, both for the sake of the man who told you and for conscience sake, the other man's conscience. I mean, I mean not yours. For why should my freedom be judged by another's conscience? So he says, but if this guy comes up and he says, here's some grade A meat straight from Aphrodite's temple, he says, in that case, you shouldn't eat. You know, passages like this drive the, drive the legalistic thinker completely nuts. So should we eat the meat or not? The answer is, depends. You know, what we want, we want something that's just detailed out for us so that in every scenario we know what to do. And yet God says, I want you to think about this critically and use principles instead of case law to determine what you should do. And really the most important ethic that should drive your thinking isn't right or wrong or the law, it should be love. What's most loving for the people involved. Third, we should accept differences without judging one another. And, um, you know, that's really what he had been advocating this whole time is that we shouldn't be judging one another. And finally, uh, we should avoid what you might call arbitrary absolutes. This was a term that one of the great thinkers of the modern day of our modern times, uh, Francis Schaeffer coined, and uh, he described this as 
this prevailing ethos that you see in American churches where there's a desire to restrict people's freedoms by creating what he calls arbitrary absolutes. So, you know, you go back to our little diagram here, you have your individual restrictions. What a lot of churches do is when they see, you know, somebody goes out to a bar and they come back and they're completely trash. They put them, they put two and two together and think, you know, it's probably not good for people to go to bars as Christians because there's too much temptation. But instead of persuading people or trying to show them that it's probably not a good idea to go out and get hammered, that um, instead what we're going to do is we're just going to legislate that, you know, it's a moral absolute that you should not go to a bar. It's just easier to do that, right? Or, you know, they look at people dancing at a club and they think, oh, you know, there's a lot of sexualized stuff with this gyrating and, and popping hips, you know, that you see in all these new modern dance moves. And so, you know, uh, it could stumble people if they are dancing in these scenarios. And so in order to avoid sexually immoral behavior, what we should just do is we should say, you should not dance or go to dance clubs. And so, yeah, what we're doing is we're just basically protecting people from uh, these different things that could hurt them. And so, um, you know, I think as we add more and more arbitrary absolutes, it shrinks that circle such that our freedom vanishes. And I think there are a number of perils in adding these arbitrary absolutes. I think, first of all, you know, this fear of contamination actually leads to withdrawal. You know, as we feel like, okay, we need to protect people from getting into sin. What does that imply? It implies that the problem is outside, right? Outside the community, that, that essentially what we need to do is we need to create a Christian cloister to protect ourselves from the evil that exists outside in the world that's encroaching upon us. And yet it's really failing to see what Jesus says, that it's from the heart, from within, that comes these evil desires, murder, sexual immorality. The problem isn't outside, the problem is right here, right, according to Jesus. And so it's really a superficial way of viewing sin and moral wrongdoing. Secondly, Christians lose touch with their non-Christian friends, which happens to be tragic since Jesus says our main mission here on earth is to spread the love of Jesus Christ to people who don't know him. You know, imagine Joe gets a call from his buddy, and um, he's like, hey, Joe, uh, playoffs start tonight. You want to go out to the bar and have a drink uh, with me at the bar, watch the game? And he's like, well... Uh, uh, well, I'm a Christian, and I, um, <clears throat> I don't think that it's right for me to go and um, hang out at a bar, let alone have a drink. It's just not something I would do. And, you know, he's like, oh, okay. Um, well, let's scrap that. Why, why don't we go out to this uh, new flick? I hear that it's really good. It's got good reviews and stuff, and um, we can go later on tonight. He's like, well, uh, you see... 
um, I'm a Christian now, and it's really just not God's will for me to like <laughs> watch R-rated movies anymore. So I just really feel like that's uh, <clears throat> just something I don't want to do. You know, oh, okay. Um, well, okay, well, what about, you know, maybe this weekend, uh, a couple of our buddies, you know, they're going to get together. We're going to have a poker game and stuff. You should come and join us. And you're like, <laughs> you see, <laughs> Christians are, uh, we're, we're not allowed to gamble either and stuff. And that's just going to be kind of, I don't know, it's just kind of a problem and stuff. And so, you know, Joe's buddy is like, well, okay, um, well, yeah, maybe uh, we should hang out some, some other time. I guess we'll figure something out. Hangs up the phone. And his buddy is thinking to himself after hanging up the phone, man, I really wish I could become a Christian. <laughs> Why would anybody view that as appealing? Why would any non-Christian person think to themselves as they're investigating Christianity and they're looking around at all the weird creepy Christians who don't do anything that other people in the world do and think to themselves, oh, I want to be just like that. I want to get rid of all the things that I regard to be really fun. Why would they ever do that? Even worse, who are we to put hurdles in front of people who may want to know Christ? And yet I'm sure God's probably standing in the background like, I never said that. I never, told, I never told them that drinking was wrong. They're making it up. You know, third, Christians become odious to the non-Christian world. What happens is that Christians feel like because our culture is contaminated, we need to come up with something that would be identical but with a Christian spin to it. And so, you know, you have Christian rap, You've got Christian punk rock. You've got Christian death metal. Um, there's even Christian clothing lines that uh, people, you know, put forward. And it's just like, there's a Christian alternative to practically anything out there. And so, you know, as a non-Christian person who's maybe investigating Christianity, even considering seriously the claims of Christ, they're thinking to themselves and evaluating do I really want to give up all of this to follow Jesus? And that's a real problem. And finally, it draws attention away from what really matters. You know, God wants to transform our lives. He wants to fix the problems that ail us. But he doesn't do that just because he wants us to have a happy, a well-adjusted life. He does it because he wants our lives to be attractive to the watching world. For people to, to look out there and see, you know, there's something different about these people. And it's not because of the way that they dress or the way that they talk. It's something about their values, the way that they treat people that's attractive. Now, I think that there are some perils of unrestricted freedom as well. I think, first of all, people may misunderstand our actions. And so we need to be mindful how does, you know, my freedom, my use of freedom, how does that impact the people around me? Secondly, people conclude, may conclude that uh, right and wrong don't matter because of our actions. They might be confused. Thirdly, we may lose our freedom due to excess. You know, we think to ourselves, I have the freedom to go and, and do these things, and yet... What ends up happening is we throw ourselves headlong 
in going after these things that it actually enslaves us and traps us such that we lose our freedom. So let's draw a few conclusions. I think, first of all, living for Christ gives us true freedom. Um, you know, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. You know, Jesus said, uh, if you know the truth, the truth will set you free. We have incredible freedom in Christ. Um, freedom not only to uh, choose against God, but also freedom to choose for God, which without the Spirit of God would be incredibly difficult, if not impossible. Secondly, don't use your freedom as a way to satisfy your selfish desires. You know, some of us don't care how our actions impact the people around us. All we care about is whether or not this feels good to me or whether I think it's right. And so it's important for us not to use our freedom as a license to go out and do whatever we want. But instead, we should use our freedom to serve others in love. And like a real practical way to, you, to do this would be, you know, imagine if you have somebody who does struggle with substance abuse, who becomes a believer in Christ and is starting to come around, you know, maybe one thing you could do is you could ask, okay, uh, do you feel comfortable with me or us having a beer around you? Or do you feel like this is maybe stumbling you or causing you to feel temptation? In which case, if that brother or sister says, yeah, that's, you know, I, I sort of feel tempted whenever I'm around this because I'm trying to get clean, then maybe in that case, what we need to do is we need to restrict our freedoms out of love for this person. And, you know, really the ultimate example of this would be Jesus, who had incredible freedom, who really, you know, deserved uh, exaltation and glory from all men. And yet, what did he do with that freedom? He set it aside, came in the likeness of a human being, put on human flesh, and died so that we could have freedom to free us from our moral wrongdoing, our guilt. And so Jesus gives us an example of the kind of freedom that we should express, one that is constrained by love. And finally, we need to resist any attempt to go beyond what God has revealed in his written word. There's a temptation when we see people moving in a trajectory or a path that we think is going to be damaging for them to just simply say, you just shouldn't do that. So when we set up an arbitrary absolute, we're thinking that we're helping that person, but there are some unintended consequences which could damage not only that person, but also the people within our community wants us to express where we're willing to limit our freedoms for the sake of loving others. All right, why don't we just spend our remaining time just uh, praying and then um, we can hang out afterwards. Thanks that you call us uh, not to just simply do what we think is right or wrong, but you call on us to do what is ultimately loving for all parties. And um, we thank you that that's the guiding ethic in all that we do. And um, I pray that as we grow uh, spiritually, that we can get in touch more with your values and uh, what's at the core of uh, what you want to see in the world, and that that becomes uh, really the way that we make these complicated 
uh, decisions that we face in life. And um, we pray, too, that uh, we can become more conscious, too, of uh, the people around us and their needs and not use our freedom as a license for selfishness, but that we would be willing to restrict ourselves for the sake of others. And uh, we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. This study was recorded at Xenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.